Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, on the childcare note, I am not sure why anyone leaves me alone with my own kids. So if you want to leave me alone with your kids, uh, good luck. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Well, good morning, church. It's so exciting to be here with you. We are in a series right now uh, called New Beginnings. And last week, we started the conversation and we talked about Abram. And we talked about this amazing idea that sometimes when God calls us to where we're going, we have to leave things behind to get there. And then we talked about the importance of direction. And so I gave you guys, I don't always do this, but I gave you guys a little phrase that will help you and you can remember. And uh, if, you, if you remember it, I'll remind you one more time. And it's one of those things you can get as a tattoo if you want. It's a pretty good one. Uh, no, I'm teasing. Don't do that. But we talked about how direction, not desire, ultimately determines your destiny. And so the, the basic premise was, if I get on I-5 South, no matter how bad I want to go to Seattle, I'm never getting to Seattle. And I can want it all I want, but if I don't move in that direction, I won't get there. And so Abraham, he left home, he started in the right direction, but then he detoured and he got stuck. And without moving in that direction, he couldn't get to his destination. And so, so we began the conversation just talking about what does it take to move in the direction? And then ultimately we landed on this amazing truth that the promise of God's destiny in his life actually extended well beyond him. And because he was obedient to that, it affected his family. And all of us today are affected by his faith and obedience. And so in uh, Genesis uh, 15, it said, uh, it said that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And sometimes it's just about can we believe God? And then today we're going to continue kind of in the same conversation talking about this idea that sometimes we head off in the direction that we believe that we're supposed to be going. And then God somehow changes that direction. And we have to process thinking this is where I thought I was going, but this isn't where I ended up. What's interesting is who we're talking about today. Similar to Abram, I realized he had a name change. And I started looking through, and I had not really planned this as I, as I began writing the series, but everyone we're talking about in the series of New Beginnings, somewhere along the lines, they had a name change. And uh, there's just something powerful about this idea that when God changes the direction and changes uh, the destiny of where we're going, sometimes he renames that thing, and it's just pretty powerful. I thought, I thought that was cool. That was free. That was extra. But uh, So Abram went from Abram to Abraham, and then it got my wheels turning, and I was thinking about... Uh, I was thinking about times when I really felt like I knew something for sure. And here's the thing about me. I'm just going to be honest. I love being right. I love being right. You do not want to watch. All right. Transparent moment here. My wife's in the room. You do not want to watch Jeopardy with me. I'm not very good, but when I'm right, I will let somebody know. It's, I mean, there's no difference, honestly, in my living room when the Niners score a touchdown or when I get a Jeopardy answer right. I mean, we are on fire. There's, there's some passion that's coming out of me. The last couple of weeks has been like the college tournament, and I'm like yelling at the screen the whole time. Oh, by the way, I missed a Bible question for the first time in my whole adult life on Jeopardy. I, I missed it. I froze up. I froze up. It was pressure. It was like the $200 question. It was the easiest one. And the answer was so obvious that I couldn't. I was like, it's got to be a trick question. It's got to be a trick question. Do I have to share what it was? Right, I better share what it was. All right. It was, it was this, this is the last name written in the Bible. Yeah, see? You froze up too, right? $200 question. It's Jesus. Yeah, yeah. There you go, right? I was like, no, that's too obvious. It's got to wait. John wrote Revelation. Who wrote, you know, did he say something? Did he mention anybody? I, I, I totally froze up. I missed my first Bible question. So here's the thing. I love being right. When I'm not right, there's problems. <laughs> if you're one of those folks that enjoys not being right, I really want to know you. 
and just come into my life so that I can be right all the time and we can talk about things and you can just allow me to, no, no, okay. We do that though, right? We love to be right. We love to be sure of things and we get passionate and we form opinions and we have ideas and we're like, I know this is the truth because this is how I feel about this and all of my data seems to indicate that this is the case. So what happens when we're passionate about something and we're sure we're right and then somehow our vantage point changes and then we're not so sure anymore. I was thinking about a few years ago. It was, uh, gosh, it had been 2002. I was 24 years old, and I was leading a healthy youth group, and we were at some kind of a camp excursion, and there was a speaker up front, and he was talking about Jacob, another guy who got his name changed, has got changed his destiny, just interesting. And he was talking about Jacob wrestling with an angel, And ultimately wanting God to bless him and that God changed who he was from Jacob, which means heel grabber to Israel, which is the male form of the word Sarah, the name Sarah. Any Sarah's in the house? Anybody who knows what Sarah means? Princess, right? And so so what did Israel mean? The male version meant prince and Israel meant prince of God. So he changed his name and his identity from uh, from someone who's clutching at everybody else for, for affirmation to a prince of a powerful message. I remember it. And and he's speaking to this room of teenagers, and I'm in the back, and I'm in adult mode when you're with a bunch of teenagers. Like, I'm making sure the couples are sitting far enough apart. And, you know, the, the things I got to do, I'm paying attention. You know, I'm flicking the back of the heads of the middle schoolers who are, you know, dorking around. I'm, I'm doing what I do at a youth conference, right? I'm paying attention to the room. I'm, I'm in security mode. I'm catching the message, and it's good. And then he, he invites people to come forward, and he's talking about how God's got to change some things that we're carrying on to that have become part of our destiny, that have become part of who we are. That's not who God intended us to be. And, and these teenagers are starting to come forward, and he's laying hands, and he's praying for them, and it's good. And I'm thinking, you know, and I'm in business mode. I'm in, okay, cool. That kid I'm going to follow up with. That kid I'm definitely following up with, different reason. That kid, like, I'm in, I'm in the zone, right? I'm, I'm police. I'm doing what all of you parents are hoping that I'm doing at the conference, making sure that they're safe and paying attention and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then someone comes up behind me, and it's one of my, one of my lifelong mentors, and he taps me on the shoulder, and he says, Mike, I think you're supposed to go up there. And I was like, what? Who's dorking off? Like, I'm, I'm like in the zone, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm up there, you know? I got rear naked choke skills, you know, youth pastor skills, you need those. I'm like, I will tap someone out up there. What is it? He goes, no, 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 I think you're supposed to go up there. I was like, what are you talking about? Why would I need to go up there? He goes, I don't know. But I think you're supposed to go up there and get prayed for. Something about, something, you're carrying something you shouldn't be carrying. I was like, I'm not carrying, what are you talking about? Like, I'm in police mode, I'm in business mode, I'm in charge mode. And he's like, no, I think there's something for you. And I was like, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, is there something with your family? I was like, uh-oh. Don't do that. <laughs> don't poke at that. He goes, Mike, is there something with your dad that you need to deal with? And here came the dagger to the heart. See, my real biological dad wasn't around. He left when I was really little, showed up once when I was five, kidnapped me for three days. I guess five-year-olds weren't as much fun as he thought and just dropped me back off at my grandparents' house. And that was it. He was out. So 19 years since I had any contact with him at all. And there was in me a mechanism I had built in order to process this information. I had built inside of me a mechanism to handle the fact that my biological dad didn't want to be part of my life. I had an opinion about him. I had a resolve in terms of that. I had a place in my heart that I had mm, 
squeezed all the juice out of so that it was just bone dry and stone. And I just put it on a shelf as that's part of my story. And here's this moment where someone's praying. And he's praying that God would change the way you think and feel about some things. And I had a pretty good strategy for dealing with it. I knew how to deal with it. I knew how to say, hey, that doesn't faze me. Hey, that doesn't change my destiny. Hey, that doesn't get into my heart. But you know what I didn't know how to do? Hey, that person was a human who God loves. Hey, maybe you should consider what it would take to forgive someone who could do that. Yeah. Want to kick me right in the gut. And I remember thinking, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing that. Like, thanks for the, thanks for the, you know, thanks for the nudge, but, uh, you know, I'm in business mode maybe some other time. And then I remember thinking, okay, I have a strong feeling about this, and I know how I process this, but I'll go since, you know, this guy asked me to, I'll head to the front and I'll do it. And I remember sitting there and praying and talking to God and saying, God, is there something here? And I got to be honest with you. I had in my mind a picture of a person who didn't care, who was no agenda, who had all these things in my head. And I realized in that moment, as I began to pray, I said, God, is there something I got wrong here? I realized, this is going to blow you up, but I just realized I was a solid four years older than he was when he left. I was 24. He was 20. He was just, you know, young guy. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I can still remember being 20 and an idiot. Sorry, that's on the podcast. And I, I had this picture in my head of someone who had a master plan of manipulation and not a scared-to-death 20-year-old who didn't know what to do. And something in me changed. My perspective changed. And here's God. I'm standing face-to-face at that altar. Wet works has hit. I'm not a crybaby, but, you know, it's happening. <laughs> and God just revealing, hey, this man who you hate in your core, but you've just wrapped that up, is someone I created and I love. And they're lost. And you holding this is only killing you, not them perspective changed a new vantage point see it's a hard thing when we know we're right yeah i'm right he should have this and he should have never this and why didn't he this i'm right i can mount a terrible case i can defend it to my last but then something happens and we have a reflective moment with the creator of the universe and it changes our perspective So today I want to talk a little bit about how that happens to us. Sometimes it's maybe not as dramatic as that. Sometimes it's just in the workplace. Ever had this one? That person's out to destroy me. Everything they do is just wrapped around making my life hard and trying to subvert me. And and you have mounted a case and you have evidence and you have examples and you have a full reasoning why they're out to do that. And then you sit down with them. And you're like, oh, dang it. They're a human. Maybe they are broken, but I'm broken too. Dang it. It was so much easier to sit from this point and just be right. And you're right probably. You probably could justify your rightness. And then you sit down face to face with someone that God created, that God loves, that God designed. And you go, dang it. Dang it. Am Am I still right, God? to feel this way that's just the workplace i can go on and on different examples family friends scenarios situations but what changes is we 
have a change in perspective. You know, a new vantage point oftentimes changes our whole reality. I was thinking it was only in the 1500s that Magellan had to make sure we all knew the world wasn't flat. That wasn't that long ago in the grandscape of all of the earth. And here's us. Everybody knew it was flat. Well, some had figured it out, but essentially we weren't sure. And it changed our whole perspective. I was looking at uh, things we used to all know. I just kind of Googled it because I was thinking about things we used to all know. And there were some really funny ones. Um, I won't go too far into it because some of them were pretty inappropriate. But a lot of them had to do with, like, how you raise your kids. And, you know, there was a, a lot of medicines that we gave kids now that if you, um, if you bought them on the street, you'd do time. <laughs> but we would just give them to kids. And we wonder why the whole Victorian age was addicted to opiates and stuff. But we started them right off at the beginning that way. There was a funny one about um, if, a, if a mom was angry that her milk would sour, like, like the, her, her mental temperature would affect her body temperature. Like, it was hilarious. But we all knew that until, that was 1916, by the way, when the book came out and was like, hey, guys, that's not true. So <laughs> there's hilarious things. We all knew those things, and then a new vantage point happens, and it changes our perspective, and it changes the way we think about things. And then all of a sudden we have to realize, hey, maybe for this season I had all this information and I was certain. But maybe, just maybe, maybe with a different perspective, I was a little bit wrong. Then I was thinking about how we get our perspective on things. I was thinking about how much our family of origin really determines how we think about things. We grow up in a, in a family and there's certain rules and codes and there's things that are okay and things that are not okay. And some of those are just traditions in our family, but we know them. We know they're true. We know that's what you should do. We know that's how you should behave. We know that you should go to church on Sunday. It's a moral imperative. It was in our family. We've all gone. Is it? I don't know. I'm glad you're here. Don't leave. Well, a little bit leave, but not right now. But we know some things because we were in our family of origin. We know them because they were part and connected to those things uh, because they're in our family. Sometimes we know them because we um, subscribe to their web channel and we hear those data points from that perspective. And now we've formed the truth. We've heard a story about someone, and we've read an opinion piece on it, and we've put those things together, and now, ooh, am I getting close to political? I'll back off. Everybody tensed up there a little bit, so I'll back off just a little bit. But we've formed an opinion, and we know who they are because we've got a sound bite and a written piece about it, and so we know something now. We've formed our opinion on them. Sometimes it was influential people. It was teachers or bosses or whoever, and we just know some things about the world because of that. Not all bad, but... It happens, and then all of a sudden we get a new vantage point, a new opinion, and it changes everything. So today I want to talk about someone who gets an incredible shift in their vantage point, an incredible shift in their perspective. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Acts chapter 9, and I want to talk a little bit about how we can know that we know that we know and then be wrong. And then God shifts our vantage point. And what is, what is the answer to that? I'm going to talk a little bit about a guy named Paul. Now, he had a name change, so in the beginning, his name is Saul. And some of you know his story. I'm going to be honest with you. I think I've said this from the microphone, so it's not totally new. He's not my favorite guy in the Bible. I, I'm beginning to figure out why I don't like him so much. The more I study his life, I'm like, this guy, I mean, he was like an Ivy Leaguer. He was like, he had everything kind of handed to him up front. He had all of these advantages. He was stinking crazy smart. And I think I'm just a little intimidated that, I, that I'm like, dude, I like Peter. I like the guys that are just knuckleheads, put their foot in their mouth, and God's got to, like, bail them out all the time. I can relate to that kind of dude. I'm that kind of dude. Paul drives me crazy. But here's the thing about Paul. 
There's 27 books in the New Testament. The second half of the Bible, the Bible's a library, if you didn't know that. It's 66 books all put together in, in one. Um, I think there's 40-something authors. There's, there's 27 books in the New Testament, and Paul wrote 13 of them. Think about that for a second. The second half of the Bible, what we know about the church and Jesus, the things that have passed down through generations. This guy wrote 13 of them. Some people are, are firm believers, some not so much that he may have written Hebrews. So possibly 14 of them, at least probably influenced them, over half. Then if you look at Luke, Luke was actually one of his buddies, one of his disciples. He actually mentored Luke. And so Luke, who uh, came under uh, Paul as, and studied, he directly influenced Luke. Luke wrote the most about Jesus. That we have the book of Luke and the most about the early church that we have acts. So if you take Paul out of the scriptures, you lose almost all of the New Testament. So I'm just saying he's significant, <laughs> whether you like him or not. I think if he didn't try to talk about marriage so much and just make like world so hard for me to explain, like use normal words that we understand on the, this level. Right. But uh, <laughs> but anyways, I still love him. Uh, but, but here's Paul, and at this point his name is Saul, and I, I, he, that's who he becomes. That's who he becomes. But I want to talk a little bit about where he starts, because Saul knew some things. Saul grew up, his dad was a Roman citizen, which in that time, being a Hebrew with born with Roman citizenship, was like as much advantage as you could possibly have society-wise. Uh, Roman citizens had no fear they could travel from town to town, and no one would molest them or bother them or try to rob them. Because if you said, I'm a Roman citizen, I have citizenship, people would not mess with you. Because the consequences of messing with you were catastrophic. Rome would come down and crush you and crush your family and crush your friends and crush everyone who knows about you. So he was born with a little bit of privilege in this time. He grew up in a Hellenistic environment. Um, what that means is Alexander the Great had conquered uh, all the known world and brought kind of a Greek uh, type of thought. There were two real types of Jews that were uh, living at this time when Jesus was born. There were those that still kind of held to a Hebraic or Hebrew type of values. So they had the Hebrew values in their core. And then there were Hellenistic Jews that had more of the Greek values, which is more enlightened thought. They were deep thinkers. They were a little bit more uh, diverse in their study. Things weren't quite as black and white. He grew up in that culture and then his parents uh, didn't like that, so they sent him to train under the most esteemed. He, he went to the Princeton slash Harvard slash Yale of being a Jew, okay? And he studied with Gamaliel. I'm going to say his name wrong, uh, but he studied with the, the best teacher of that time. So he's privileged. He's got money. He's got esteem. He's got power. He's got Ivy League level education. He's sharp, okay? He's risen through the ranks as a relatively young man. He has authority and power. Uh, most believe he sat on the Sanhedrin, which would have been like the religious uh, uh, Supreme Court, essentially. They were deciding the laws and deciding penalties. That's who we get to meet. So we meet Saul. We actually met him last week as we were talking a little bit about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So in Acts chapter 7, he is about, believe it or not, probably the same age within maybe a couple of years probably born at the same time that Jesus was born in the manger. He was right about that same time. So if you, um, if you flip over a couple pages here in Acts chapter 9, you see at the end of Acts chapter 7, um, give me Acts 7, I think is up there. Acts chapter 7, verse 57. So at the end of this uh, incredible story, there is Stephen who has become a believer, a disciple, says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
And he tells this amazing story about Abraham that we heard yesterday. And basically he tells the Sanhedrin, which are the religious elite of that time, you guys always get it wrong. Every time someone tries to tell you about God, you get offended. You've got offended as long as you've existed for over 2,000 years. You've, you've killed everyone who says something different than you. But those guys that said something different to you eventually become your heroes. You blew it again. Well, they didn't like that. What they especially didn't like is that Stephen said that Jesus was, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, the way to get to heaven. And they were really offended by that because they understood that they had the way. They knew. And the way was by following God's laws. They also knew that God lived in a temple and in a specific place. And Stephen says, hey, God, God for all of history has been outside of the temple. When he talked to Abraham, do you think he shouted from the temple? He didn't shout across the desert. He's not constrained to one place. And you've kind of got this idea that there's only one place you can go to meet with God. You don't have to go to one place to meet with God. Jesus broke that open so you can understand you can meet with him right where you're at. And you know what that means? That means what we're doing is wrong, and so we can't have that. So they get angry at Stephen. So here's their strategy. They're like, we're going we're gonna to kill this dude. So they pick up rocks, and they encircle him. Now, this is interesting. Verse 57, it says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, and they dragged him out in the city, and they began to stone him. It says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of, check this out, a young man named who? Saul. Now, I, I wrestled with the coats thing for a while. I was trying to figure out what, what was the significance of them laying their coats. One of it... One of the significance is it shows that he was in authority, right? It shows that they were all submitted to his authority. He was looking on. He was approving. And then, but why did they take their coats off? Was there something significant? And then I realized, part of why I'm wearing a coat today, right? I wanted you to see this. It's really hard to throw a rock hard with my coat on it, right? It was practical. They needed someone. Later on in Acts, Paul, Paul as he gives his testimony, he says he guarded the coats, they gave him his coat, their coats because they didn't want him to get stolen while they threw rocks. So Paul is a young man. Or at this point, his name is Saul. And it says that they laid their coats at his feet. A young man. Then I was thinking about what a young man is. Somewhere in the vicinity of 30 would be still considered a, a young man. By 40, you were no longer considered a young man. And I was thinking about Saul and I was thinking, you know, I never really think about early on. He's pretty young. Now, some of us are... are are different phases of life. I'll just say that. And I'm finding out that I don't always know everything I think I know. Ever get there? I don't always know everything I think I know. And I think sometimes Saul gets a little bit of a burn because of the education that he's had and because of the background that he's had and, and, and all of these things. And you're like, how could he possibly do this? He's a pretty young man. And he's ambitious and he's got some facts that he's going to work with. And it says, meanwhile, the witnesses, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. After this, what happens is crazy. Saul goes on a rampage. He goes on a rampage. Now, you've got to think about what's happening in the time. Jesus has just been crucified. On the third day, they've lost the body. We know he rose again. We know he, he, he showed up and talked with the disciples. We know he showed up and talked to countless of people. We have the witness accounts. They don't have the accounts, okay? All they know is that this group of people who said that they followed Jesus, whom they crucified, are now running around making more and more converts of people who are saying they believe in Jesus. Now, you have to remember, there's no phones. 
There's no telegrams. There's no Facebook, no Internet. So people are hearing about Jesus at the speed of word of mouth. They're going from house to house, friend to friend, and they're saying, you guys don't understand. You've studied the scriptures, but the fulfillment of the scriptures has shown up, and it's Jesus. And no longer do you have to approach God through this sacrificial system and the law that absolutely makes us feel horrible because we can never make God happy. He actually paid the price so we can be forgiven, and now you can approach God face to face. And this is incredibly good news. And someone goes, yes, that's awesome. And then they go to the next person and they do the same thing. Hey, guess what? Let me tell you. And it's moving at the speed of voice. So Saul sees what's happening. And he's like, we got to put a stop to this. So in Acts chapter 9, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here's what happens. Saul goes, I've got to get ahead of this word of mouth disease that I think is happening inside of this group of people. So Damascus is about 150 miles away from where he's at. And he says, I need permission like a bounty hunter. To do a circumference, I need to be able to travel about 150 miles. I think he, if I could go about 150 miles, I could probably get ahead of this wave. And I'm going to capture and incarcerate. And you already know he's willing to throw rocks at and let get murdered anyone who says that they're a follower of the way. Now, the way is an interesting thing if you've not heard that before. The believers haven't been called Christians yet. In fact, the believers never called themselves Christians. Christians is a, is a made-up term that the Romans used to make fun of people who believed that Jesus was actually the Christ, the person who died for their sins, who came back for them, and who believed that he actually lived in their hearts. They would call them Christians because it meant little Christs. Oh, look at the, it was It was demeaning. It was the same way, think high school, right? Everybody's got a label, but most of the time, you didn't, like, create the label for yourself. You didn't all get together and say, we're going to be the preps. That's what we're going to do, right? Somebody else, probably the jocks, looked over at you guys. Come on. And they're like, you know what those guys are? They're the preps. And at some point, the preps were like, you know what? We're the preps. And they embraced that like a band of honor, right? And they became the preps. That's how the term Christians flew off the shelf and became a thing. It was a demeaning, mocking, humiliating phrase that was just about, oh, you're so cute. You think you have a little Jesus inside of you. Like, that was, it was like that. They were mocking them. And eventually the Christians were like, yeah, that's exactly who we are. We're the people who believe we have Jesus inside and they embrace it. So, so anyways, before that, it was simply called the way. Now, why would it be called the way? Because Jesus communicated something really powerful about who he was. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. you got to remember, this was the major tension point of his ministry, that somehow he was the path to get access to the Father. Because those who were religious at that time had control. They had a monopoly on a path to the Father. And you had to come to us, and you had to bring your sacrifices, and you had to you know, mind your P's and Q's, and there's a bunch of laws, and we're going to add some more laws on top of the laws, and we're the ones... Who can give you access to God? And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm the way. So that's why they call them followers of the way. Now catch this. Whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
So I just want you to think about this tirade that he's on. He's literally capturing men, women alike, and just incarcerating them and brutally having them executed for saying that they're followers of Jesus. And why? Because he's trying to stamp out this thing that has sprung up that has got people believing a different way than he believes. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, look what happens. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now this is powerful. Saul's not persecuting Jesus. He's chasing followers of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't identify himself separate from those that put his, their faith in him. He says, when you persecute them, you persecute me. I'm in them. This is a power statement. Paul's, Saul's getting a complete realignment of what he thinks about here. The church isn't a building. It's these people. Jesus does really love us. Verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. Now, see, Paul recognizes that there's an authority here, but he's not sure who he's dealing with yet. Something's happened. A flash of, now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a flash of light moment. I have not. If you have, you should write about it. It's probably awesome. But to be on my way to do something that I know that I know that I know that I'm supposed to do, and then encountering Jesus like this would probably get a more terrified reaction out of me than Saul. Again, I can never relate to this guy. He goes analytical. He's like, who are you, Lord? I don't know about you, but I would be hitting the skids. I'd be running, right? But he wants clarification. <clears throat> clarification. Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, it says, The man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. And he's got his entourage with him and everything. He gets punked out, falls down. They don't even know what's happening. It says, They heard the sound, but they didn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. There's something powerful about when he lost his vision, he gained vision. Hmm. When he could no longer see it his own way, he had to trust that God would see it his way. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or he didn't drink anything. Let's pause right there. Saul's on a journey. He's headed to a destination, and he has a reason for going there. And there's some things he knows. There's some things he actually knows. And I want to talk a little bit about what happens here. I'm going to give you some things that Saul knew. One thing he knew is he knew the scriptures. Think about that. Saul knew the scriptures. If you think you know your Bible, you got nothing on him. He was like a king of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees could repeat the Torah by heart. The first five books of the Bible. As a matter of fact, over a hundred times in his letters, he quotes the scriptures. How does he quote the scriptures? He is not carrying a library with him. He quotes them because he knows them. He has them down. He has them memorized. Time after time after time, he's in prison, and he writes a letter, and he quotes the scriptures. This is a young man who's got his Bible down. He knows it. He knew the scriptures. You know what else he knew? He knew the law. He went and got a warrant. He went to the religious court system and he got permission. He was operating under the letter of the law. He knew he was right. He had the scriptures behind him. 
he had the law on his side, you know what else he had? He had the will of the people, the masses. Of course he should stomp out this little cult, this little group of people who are distorting our belief system. All of the influential people believed that he was right and encouraged his behavior. Wouldn't that be enough for you to be sure you were right? You could point at your actions and say, in the scriptures, there's room for me to do this. There's very few things as dangerous as someone with a scripture in their hand. Not the scriptures, a scripture. Right? It can be incredibly dangerous to know the scriptures and not know the author. And be able to take something out of context and use it to destroy what God loves. Dangerous. It can be incredibly dangerous to know the law. And not know the source of truth. And apply that law. Man, there are times when we've had some terrible laws. You want to have fun one day? Just Google dumb laws that have been in the U.S. I won't do it for you because it'll get recorded and I'll laugh and we'll lose the whole thing. We've had some horrible laws. I mean, we split the country into war over some dumb laws, didn't we? But there was a time when everybody knew that law was right. Pastor Mike, are you saying don't obey the law? No. I'm saying the law, apart from the author of truth, can be dangerous. Because you destroy what the author of truth loves. People. But he knew the will of the masses. Well, this one seems obvious, right? He knew the will of the masses. Everybody agreed. This is what you should do. Yes. Round up these women and children. Take them out. Watch my jacket while I throw rocks at this guy. Are you kidding me? But here's a young man. He's studied. He knows the word. He knows the law. He knows the will of the masses. And Jesus shows up. And this is amazing. He doesn't know the person. And when he meets Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. Sometimes, we're going to go here a little bit. Sometimes, we build our argument and we forget Jesus. And we can know that we're right and be so far away from the truth. I knew I was right to hate that man that left my family. I knew it. You knew you were right to whatever feel that way, take that position. You knew it. And then here comes Jesus. And something happens. He's going this way and he gets knocked off his horse. Ever been knocked off your high horse? And all of a sudden, it becomes about people. And there's a reason why Jesus says all of the law and all of the commandments hang on these two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as your Self. And when you miss that, you miss the truth. And when you hit that, you can't miss the truth. And it changes everything for Paul. The rest of the story is powerful. You should read it. I won't get too lost in it. 
I just know his eyes get blinded. There's a cool story about Ananias. It's, there's two Ananiases in the scriptures, so don't get confused. This guy hears, sees a vision, and God says, hey, I need you to go pick up Saul because he's blind. He's going to need some help. He's like, dude, word has already spread. He's a murderous maniac. No thanks. Right? And God's like, just do it. And he's like, ugh, fine. He goes, and he prays with them, and the scales fall off of his eyes. And then Paul has a radical conversion. Uh, he prays with them. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, literal transformation happens. And then he studies. And by the end of his trip to Damascus, he's preaching about Jesus so much that now the people there want to kill him. He actually has to leave Damascus in a basket over the side of the wall. They have to smuggle him out because everybody in town wants to kill him because he can't shut his mouth about Jesus. And all of a sudden, he has the right lens. All of a sudden, the scriptures are fulfilled. Now, now what's amazing is God took someone with all of this baggage and said, I'm not going to ruin your baggage. I'm going to use your baggage. You think you know what's right, but I'm going to use that because what you bring to the table plus Jesus, here we go, is enough. Woo. You know the law? That's awesome. When you apply the law plus Jesus, lives can get changed. You think you know the will of the masses? That's awesome. Take the truth of Jesus to the will of the masses. That's amazing. Paul, you've been divinely placed. That's amazing. You know what else is amazing about this? I'm not going to get us lost here too much. Paul wasn't on a journey looking for Jesus. Sometimes we get stuck in this idea like, man, we got to find Jesus. Jesus was not playing hide and seek with him. He wasn't some place just waiting to, whoo. He was right there pursuing him. Some of us just got to realize God's been pursuing you. And you've been thinking, man, I just can't figure this thing out. I don't, have, I don't have all the pieces. I'm not sure exactly how to make this thing work. Awesome. God will use that where you've been so far. Just let me introduce you to Jesus. And here's Jesus showing up saying, Paul, you're close. But you misapplied it. You took what was intended to be good and you made it dangerous because you forgot How powerful is that? You know, there's a, there's a thing that happens in us when, when we meet Jesus. And it's like this changing of our mind. I was thinking about the word repent. It happens over and over again in Scripture. And time and time again, we talk about this needing to repent. But, but the real definition of, of repenting in Scriptures, um, the word is, I'm going to say it wrong, it's, it's metanoia. And it just means you've changed your mind. You've changed the way you think. When Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, and his first message that he preaches, he says, he says I think I'm going to put it up there. He says, repent. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What is he saying? He's saying change your behavior? No, he's saying change the way you think. You, you, you are good how you were designed. You're just thinking wrong. And here's Paul. He's headed one way. And he, he thinks he has a destination, but he's thinking wrong. He hasn't included Jesus in the equation. And since he hasn't included Jesus in the equation, he's come to the wrong conclusion. And ultimately, he's headed to the wrong destination. What do they say? It's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. It's not what you know, it's who you know. There's a lot of things I know enough to just be dangerous. 
And if you put me in a situation and you fed my ego, I'll tell you all the things I know. And I'll make a fool of myself because it's not what I know, it's who I know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Many times I think we hit these critical moments in our lives, these critical decisions, these critical ways of thought, and we're wrestling with this thing because we know we're right. Okay, you're right. How's that working out for you? I'm so frustrated because I'm right and they're wrong. Okay. I'm so frustrated because I didn't get the thing that I knew I was entitled. Okay. I got you. I'm with you. You're right. But what about Jesus? What about how Jesus feels about that situation? What about how Jesus feels about that person? What if you included him in the conversation? You know, it drives me crazy when Jesus redirects me. Just a few months ago, I was living in Oregon, cranking away, bought a house, found a school for my kids, just cranking away, and then here comes Jesus. Sometimes what you're doing is not wrong. I'm doing the right thing. I'm running my race. God, what do you want me to do? I'll go. Point me in that direction. I'll go. I'm running. And here comes Jesus. Like, hey, buddy, look up. I'm right here. I'm right here. Will you go to the place I called you to go? But Jesus, I'm running. I got a thing and I'm going. Yeah, but will you go do the thing I called you to do? Well, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? Well, do you trust me? Well, how am I supposed to trust you? Well, do you know what I said? Well, yeah, I know what you said. Well, do you believe what I said? Well, yeah, I believe. Shoot. (laughs) All right, God, here we go. Put the house on the market again. Believe that you can do what you say you'll do. Sometimes it's not sin. You just haven't given Jesus a chance to weigh in. You're so content that you've got a path and you're locked in. And it may even be good. This is our goal. We're going to do this. We're going to accomplish this. We're going to reach this financial goal. We're going to reach this goal with our kids. We're going to reach this thing. And we're going to push towards it. It's a good goal. Great. That's an awesome goal. What about Jesus? Did you let him weigh in? Did you give him an opportunity to speak? Have you gotten to, how do, how do we hear his voice? Okay. Have you gotten into his word? Have you met him? Sometimes we get into the word and, and we, <laughs> we just do like the, you know, the shotgun thing. We're just like, bam. And you look down and you're like, okay. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Dang it. That's not helpful. Jesus. I didn't make that up. That's where I landed. <laughs> it's like, it's not helpful. How do I learn to hear your voice? How's, how's my prayer life? Am I getting into your world? Am I, am I, you know, Jesus says you, you search the scriptures because you think the scriptures have life, but they point to me. He's the life. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Right? They're good because they point us to Jesus. They tell us what he's like and who he is. And then we meet him. And he knocks us off our horse. But we were right. It was a great goal. Okay. But what he has for you is better. Don't worry. Dang it. There we go again. Don't worry. But God, what if? Don't worry. And here's Jesus. This is the first message he preaches. Repent and believe the good news. Change the way you're thinking. 
and believe the good news. What's the good news? The good news that God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. Whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And the next thing he says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You're living like the kingdom of heaven is far away, like you've got to manage this. But I'm on the right path. I'm heading the way I'm supposed to go. Yet I got this tug in my heart that somehow I missed something that I'm designed for. That somehow I've run the, the race the wrong direction. And I'm, well, I'm not going to stop. Because i got to just get there. I'll deal with it later. Okay. How many bodies on the way? Can you imagine if Paul was like, all right, I got this. But I did get the warrant. So I'm going to go ahead and finish up. The way I was going before, I'll arrest all these Christians, and then, you know, right? No. He met Jesus, and it changes everything. It changes everything. I'm going to bring up uh, the fellows that are going to help us with communion today. And communion is a powerful thing. Because Jesus says, when you do this, you remember me. So... What I want us to do today as we kind of wrap up our time together is I want to invite you to remember Jesus and whatever your situation is today. Now listen, some of you are like, well, I'm not a member and I don't know. Don't worry about it. We're not, membership is not a requirement. This is about remembrance. And so you're welcome to partake. If you don't want to partake, don't worry about it. But in just a moment, the fellows are going to pass around the trays and you'll just take a juice and you'll take a bread and you hold on to that. And then I'm going to give us an opportunity. Paul says you should examine yourself. So we're going to do some self-examination. And we're just going to ask some basic questions. Jesus, did I remember you? In my family, have I been remembering you? Have I been loving my spouse? Like you were the center of our lives and our relationship. Have I been loving my kids? Have I been doing my job like I was a living example of you here? Have I been making decisions like you were the center of my life? Did I remember you? Or did I just take all the information and make the best decision that I could make? Is there a chance I'm wrong? I'm going to pray and and they're going to pass this out. We're going to just worship and then I'll come in and I'll give us some instructions. Father, would you challenge our hearts? God, New beginnings, your, your word says your mercies are new every morning. We have opportunities to make new beginnings. Some of us are like, well, God, you don't understand. I, I've just been running. I'm doing things what I think is right. And, and wow, it could really mess me up to include you in the process. God, would, would you give us the courage to let you mess us up? And some of us, we've been probably running far and fast. And the idea of even inviting you into the equation seems terrifying. Would you give us courage today?
our perspective, Lord. Change our vision, Lord. Change our hearts, Lord. Um, what an amazing thing to meet two incredibly different people, Saul and Paul, but they're the same guy. Both totally certain they're right, but one plus Jesus. Paul's writing to Timothy, his young protege, and he tells his story. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's Paul saying that. He wrote 23 books, maybe 24. Two of the other ones include him. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus may display his unlimited patience and is an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Some of us, the change of direction is a pretty heavy thing because we've been heading in a direction we know we shouldn't be going. And we've justified it. We've figured out a way to make it okay in our heads. The end justifies the means. Paul says, I don't think so. But Jesus came, and you can have a new beginning today. Some of us, we've got like strong biblical examples of why we should go ahead and do the thing we know in our heart we shouldn't do. We should never forget that. Okay. Good luck with that when you add Jesus to the equation. For some of us, it's just a simple recalibration. You're like, I, I think I got this. Great. Well, Paul was pretty clear that he didn't have it. So let's figure out in our different spaces in our life, in our family, in our relationships, where can we swing and miss? Where does Jesus need to come and just help us make the turn we need to turn so that we change our destination to the destiny he's called us to? If you take the bread, the scriptures tell us on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. God, thanks. Thanks for an insane love. You love us enough to not leave us where we're at. <laughs> I think of the, the slur of being a Christian, a little Christ person. But I embrace it. just want to do what you did. Would you change my mind on some things? Oh, that person stands for everything that I loathe. They're not worth the whatever. No. You designed them. You love them. You create them. They're your child. You want them. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember you in Jesus' name.
Would you pray for me tonight? And you can take the juice. You know, I was thinking, I'm getting old now, but I remember when the WWJD things were real popular. Every athlete and every teenager had one, and every car had a bumper sticker. And it stood for, what would Jesus do? And somehow a movement began to rise up, and like all movements, it came like a wave, and it faded and with bad marketing or whatever, I don't know. But there was something profound and powerful about challenging people who say they believe in Jesus to think then like Jesus would think about a given situation. All right? One thing to say, God, I know you're there, so agree with me. (laughs) Then to say, God, I know you're there, help me to agree with you. And that's why that was so powerful. The scriptures tell us after he took the bread, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What was a covenant? It was the deepest, most powerful way to make a promise. And he was establishing the value that we had in the kingdom. How important and significant we were. And that we could now be in the presence of God. It was a new covenant. We didn't have to go to a place to achieve it, to accomplish it. You can be in the presence of God driving down Meridian. Now think about that for a second. That's amazing. You could be stuck in the 512 and be like Jesus and be in the presence of God. You can be right here and be far, far, far away. God, thanks for a covenant that invites us into your presence, that makes us in relationship with you, that restores us to relationship with you. Not because we did something right, but because you chose to love us, to create us, and you're good. Thanks for loving us with a perfect Father's love. You see every crack and every crevice, and you still love us. God, would you calibrate us to your love? Would you help us to invite that love into our thinking, into our processing, into how we see one another, how we see ourselves? God, I pray when we're watching the news, we wouldn't just see a hot mess. We'd see a hot mess that you love, of people that you love. When we see people standing in opposition to things that we hold true and value, would we see who you love and what you love? God, when we know we're right, would we be right because we have filtered it through what you've told us to filter it through? A love of you and a love for one another. Help us, God. Help us in our unbelief. Help us when we're afraid, when fear and doubt comes in, when worry comes in. Help us to have your perspective. Knock us off our horse, so to speak. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take it. Next week, we're going to meet another guy. He's going the right direction. He knows what Jesus said, and he still blows it. And How do we come back from that? So it's going to be fun. Come on back. Catch the podcast if you miss it. Would you just high-five someone, tell them you made it, tell them Pastor only held you nine minutes late, ten minutes, dang it, late. You did pretty good today. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord.